0: Well, we've been talking a lot about personal responsibility for study in our previous lessons, and that's only right um, because every believer has a personal walk with Christ, and when we do walk with him personally, this means we need to know and we need to understand and we need to obey the Scriptures. We need to study the Scriptures. But the New Testament has no message for the believer who has no church. Did you hear that? The New Testament has no message for the believer that has no church. And therefore, the local church is going to be central to our continued learning and our continued growth in the Word. And today, we're really thankful, and we should be thankful, because we're privileged to have all kinds of published resources beyond our local church, and we have ways to connect with people beyond our local church. That's a great thing. But the church still needs to be the starting point and the home for our spiritual accountability and our spiritual exhortation. Therefore, when we talk about others, Involved in our study, our personal study, we must begin with the church. With brothers and sisters in Christ who've made a commitment with us, like us, to one local body. People who live in covenant with us for the purposes of building one another up, and for the purposes of accomplishing the mission that he's laid out for us, for all of us. And so the commitment of brothers and sisters in Christ to us, and our commitment to brothers and sisters in Christ, starts at the very beginning. I mean, when we first come to know the Savior. Because... When we first come to know the Savior, you'll probably remember that in the Great Commission, there's also this call beyond being an evangelist and proclaiming the gospel. There's this call to teach others, people who become believers, everything, all things whatsoever, it says, he commanded. So right from the very beginning, we have a call to become involved in the study of other believers. The task of every local church, every local church evangelist is in aiding converts, people who come to know him, and leading converts in study. Isn't that true? So you have the church involved in evangelism. This is a primary directive of the church. And you have the church directly involved also in helping others to study, to come to know what the Scripture says, to come to understand what the Scripture says, to come to a place in life where we're willing to be obedient to the Scriptures. There's no doubt this is a big part of it. God's plan, as outlined by Jesus, is to sanctify individual disciples in the truth. But we work together to be set apart as well, as a local body. And we work together to be set apart for truth. This process is outlined in a whole bunch of ways in the New Testament. Actually, I could have just kept going from passage to passage to passage to passage. But I tried to pick some that we haven't talked about here. And uh, so I want to begin in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, let's look at verse 25, which says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself... For it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. You recognize that word? Sanctify, set apart. Sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The context, of course, is family. But in talking about family, we get some insight here about the church and about God's plan for the church, that it would be set apart, says here, with the washing of water by the word. Now, certainly this must reference the word of God because it is truth that sanctifies As I was reading some commentary about this, I saw that there was some debate as to what this is talking about, because it doesn't um, refer directly to the Word of God. But certainly, if we're going to be sanctified by the washing of water of the Word, we're talking about the Word of God, because it's truth. Jesus said explicitly that sanctifies, and he said his Word is truth. There's actually a lengthier passage that I want to read in 1 Peter chapter 1 that may help. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. It says this: "Wherefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children," Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. All the ways in which you lived before, however that may have been, in that time of ignorance for you before Christ. But as he which hath called you is holy, it's the same idea there being set apart for his exclusive use. As the one who called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, in every part of your lifestyle. Because it is written, there it goes to the word directly, be ye holy, for I am holy. Be set apart, because God is set apart, totally set apart. We know the passage is talking about this same idea that Jesus was talking about in John 17 about being sanctified. That's what holiness is. It's a set-apartness unto God for his exclusive use. And while this book is written to those believers that were scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, it says at the beginning of the chapter, it's obvious that they gathered themselves into local assemblies. The reason it's obvious, because as we read further, we see that they are together in quite close fellowship. They're clearly organized into local bodies. Verses 17 through 21 of 1 Peter 1. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation or lifestyle received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Did you notice that? It was talking about his church being without blemish and without spot, and it talks about him being without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. I think that's a great phrase, for you. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. There's really no doubt that this is talking to and about believers, those saved by the precious blood of Christ. They believe in his death and his burial and his resurrection, and they believe that that is crucial to them going to heaven and being saved and having their sins forgiven and washed away. But they're also living together, it seems, in obedience to the truth. If we go on to verses 22 and 23, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. They're obviously together here. They need to love one another with a pure heart fervently. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. By the word of God. That's where we're going all along here. Which liveth and abideth forever. They're clearly dwelling together here and they're doing so in love. All being together and all being purified by truth. Born again based on the incorruptible word of God which it says here, abides forever. That's important to what we're talking about. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. The last two we're going to read in this passage. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth Forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Now, we need each other. I want to make sure I say that. We need each other. We rely upon each other. But we do so temporarily. Did you notice that? We need each other. We rely on each other. But are it's temporary. How many of you know, have known someone probably everybody in this room, who you have relied upon and you have needed, and they're no longer with us. Many, many people perhaps. Man fades. He falls away like all living things. And so we teach each other to rely to an even greater extent on God's truth, because it endures forever. Now look, here's what I'm, what I'm getting at here tonight. We're to rely on each other for this idea of study and of teaching and of learning and of growing in the truth. But we can only rely on each other. Somebody can only rely on us for a temporary period of time. And what needs to be happening is we need to be passing on to others who will only be with for a short period of time something that is eternal, something that they can stand on and rely upon into whatever future they have beyond us. You know, it's always a, um, a great testimony to a church when someone who is a, a personality, and a great dynamic personality in a church, maybe a a pastor or someone important in a church, leaves or goes to be with the Lord, and that church just keeps right on going, just as it was before. And it's because they have learned and they've been grounded in what is eternal. And while we need each other and we need others to help in our learning, the Word of God is enduring forever. Churches are not about men as much as um, we may love and we may admire men. They're not about relationships. Relationships can be very important, but the church is not about relationships. It's about God's glory and God's purposes and God's mission. And God has given to us an eternal text in this Scripture that extends beyond men's lives. Because as much as we rely upon each other, and as much as we ought to, and the Scripture commands us to, all flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man is as the flower of grass. And the grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And that is what he is using to set us apart and to put us in a position where we can be used for his glory and to accomplish his mission. How then are we to be interacting regarding the scriptures in the body of Christ? Let's start, if we could, with those who teach and those who lead. The beginning of 1 Timothy 3 talks about the office of a bishop or a pastor. And it says, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop, then, must be blameless. The husband of one wife. Vigilant. Sober. Sober of good behavior, given to hospitality. And this is the only one that's different from commands that are given to everyone else throughout the scripture. This is the only one specific to a pastor. It says, apt to teach. Why must this pastor be apt to teach? What must he teach? We know it's the scriptures. Of course it is. Pastors, bishops will be the key teacher for us so often in the word of God. And the scripture warns that we must heed their authority. As it says in Hebrews chapter 13, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they must give account that they may do it with joy. And not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. This certainly refers to those who have authority in the church, who lead in the church, who teach in the church. Those who it says should be apt to teach and are doing that. They're teaching. For who else would it be that watches for our souls? This is why God has gifted us differently. And do you know what God does? We're going to read a passage that tells us this is the case. He puts just the right mix of giftings within the body as he sees fit. That's a great thing about how he works in the church. Ephesians 4 actually explains. Ephesians 4.11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers or pastors' teachers, kind of all one thing, the person we were talking about a moment ago, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Disciples are made complete or they're brought to completion in their walk within the church. God has designed it to be this way. So we can accomplish, when he works in us in this way, the work that he's given us to do together. We have to rely upon one another for many things. Help in study of the scripture, for certain. That's definitely one of them. Help in obedience to it is certainly another. Verses 14 and 15 of Ephesians 4, I want to read as well. That we, henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Are you seeing how Teaching and study is important. Carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth, that's what, how we're sanctified, speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, the head of what? The church even Christ. We don't want to get caught up in all manner of error and false teaching. It's something we're trying to avoid. And that's why we speak certain things, and we speak them in a certain way. Did you notice that? Only the truth, and only in love. Because there are others who, it says, lie in wait to deceive. So we need to rely upon one another in these things, particularly in these doctrines. Ephesians 4.16. I think this is the last verse we'll read in Ephesians 4. From whom the whole body fitly joined together. Can you kind of see the picture of that? The whole body fitly joined together. What I sort of see in my mind, if you've ever seen um, an expensive piece of furniture put together with joints and things where it perfectly fits together, God seems to do that with the church. Fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working, the effective working, In the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now That's a complex passage. But the body edifies itself in love. That means we build each other up in love. And we are one of the means, those of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we're one of the means by which other Christians grow. God uses us in that way. That is, if we're fitly joined together. Providing the, the supply that God has intended for us to supply. See, we're meant to supply things in the church to the other people in the church, which is why there's no such thing as, as passengers and Observers and people who just show up occasionally and, and choose not to participate and, and think that it's all somebody else's job. That's not God's will for anyone in the body. Because we need to supply something that we ought to be supplying. Working effectively and actually playing our part. This is God's purpose that we would all be used in whatever way God has gifted us, and it'll be in different ways, to play a part and to have a role in carrying out whatever it is that he's asked us to carry out, primarily Great Commission work. We must teach and we must live in a particular way. This passage said it. Other New Testament passage passages say it. We ought to live in a biblical way. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved. That's that set apart again, and beloved. Bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, Forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. This is why we can say to someone, anyone who wants to be a, a passenger and just ride along and just observe, a hey- Um, we can be kind, we can have mercy, um, we can be long-suffering toward you, we can forbear you in love, but you need to come along. Come along and, and play your part. Because we are who we are. Did you notice what it said we are? Elect of God, holy and beloved. We're Christ's. And so we should act and we should interact with all brothers and sisters with, among other things, mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And we should bear with one another. These things have meanings, by the way. It's not so much that we don't believe that the words are true, we sometimes don't grab on to the meanings. Mercy and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience. We should bear with one another. Be quick to forgive, this passage says. Above all, putting on charity or love. That's doing whatever you can to do what is best to give to the other person. In a perfect bond of unity. Oh, that's a high bar, a perfect bond of unity. Colossians 3.15, it's the next verse in this passage. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you're called in one body, and be ye thankful. The peace of God can rule in the hearts of people who are behaving in this way. And we can become thankful people behaving in this way. This is actually our calling to be these kind of people. But remember this. There's two other verses. Verse 16 and 17 of Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. That touches on what we've talked about before in the previous lessons leading up, where you doing your own study, you being diligent on your own, you investing in the word of God on your own, and the word of Christ is dwelling in you personally, richly, in all wisdom. And then it says this. Who should be involved in our study? Teaching and admonishing one another. We usually think of this as kind of a music passage, but it, it really means teaching and admonishing or exhorting one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. The word of Christ should inform and should alter every interaction that we have in the church. As we teach and as we admonish, see so where to be involved in other people's study and growth. As we exhort people, as we exhort each other, in every category of song that we sing, in every word, in every deed, we must do it in the name of Christ. He is the one doing the setting apart. And so we're all together in it. We're all together on this mission in life, building each other up. So, how should we interact when we come together? What does that mean for us when we come together? I think there's a really key passage for this, at least the one I thought of immediately. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Some interesting words that are chosen in this passage. In fact, somewhat unique words in the passage. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Really interesting phrases in here, how they're used. Together it says we should hold fast because we've got a faithful God who's promised some things to us. Let's hold fast. And it says we should consider one another. Okay, I told you all kinds of things that we should be involved in that that constitute hard work in regard to study. I mean, we've got to pay attention to the context of a passage. We've got to look back and see if we can use the tools that we have at our disposal to find some historical things about the scripture. We need to take the whole Bible context into account. We need to use every tool we can to help us to define the words that we're seeing, that we're reading, and then especially those that we don't understand as well. There's been some hard passages and hard words what we've studied tonight. Look, I've talked about hard work, but here's some more hard work added on top of that. And that is that you should consider one another. What does this mean? Well, it means to understand them, to be attentive to their needs, and to learn how we can assist. See, they're going to be working through some things too. They're going to have some passages they're not sure about. They're going to have some words that they haven't quite defined. They're not going to know what's the historical thing, just in the context of study. There's a lot of other things we should be considering about people. I understand that. But just in the context of study, we should understand, be attentive, learn how we can assist. This may catch us by surprise, by the way. Some may have come to the conclusion regarding church, that the church should understand us and be attentive to our needs and learn how they may assist us. Well, I don't think in a technical sense there's anything wrong with any of those ideas. That's certainly the case. But it says here we are to consider one another Well, they haven't considered me. Have you considered them? They didn't assist me. Did you assist them? Who did you assist? How much consideration have you been giving? Because this is a one another. By the way, how long-suffering have you been? How humble have you been? All those other attributes that were listed earlier, humility and long-suffering are a good place to start. If either party is self-focused, I've got bad news for us, unity becomes very difficult. That's how unity becomes difficult, when you've got parties involved that are self-focused. See, neither of us should be that way. Our responsibility is to consider one another, but it's also to provoke. Very interesting word, a fascinating word. It's incitement. Do you know how we use incitement today? Right? They're talking about this uh, Russia and Ukraine conflict in Europe. And uh, they're talking about how one side or the other could incite the enemy to attack. Well, this is not a negative kind of incitement. It's exactly the right kind of irritation. And that's what it means. Irritation. I think it's the kind of irritation that the person being irritated understands is good for them. Have you ever been irritated in that way? I was at a doctor's appointment recently, and that doctor irritated me. I promise you, I won't describe the procedure. But he did so in exactly the way that I knew that if he would irritate me in that way, it would be good for me. That's what we're talking about. It's not always pleasant, this kind of provoking, but it's always helpful. This provoking has been described by one commentator in this way it's to remind and keep reminding, it's to encourage and keep encouraging, it's to help and keep helping. The passage says we're to provoke one another unto love and good works. This is where the provoking, the irritating, needs to take the person being provoked and being irritated to love and to good works. And when they arrive at that point, we're all better off. The person doing the provoking and the one who's been provoked. We're using our gifts and sometimes just our presence within the body to push others towards God's best for their lives. This is a worthy and a wonderful pursuit. Don't forget that. We should be excited about undertaking this pursuit. We should be happy that others within our body would do the same for us. We will push them, they will push us toward loving one another more. And toward loving those who need Christ more. And toward getting involved with people who need love more. And toward speaking loving words toward loving God's commands and toward actions that profit others and actions that please God. If we consider one another enough to have any success in this work, we will be truly uncommon people in the world. Isn't that true? If we consider one another enough to provoke each other to love and good works, it's going to be an unbelievable place. And I think to a great degree, our church is like that. This passage also reminds us to assemble and not to forsake assembling. Now, there's obviously uh, some legitimate reasons not to meet. I, I had a legitimate reason last week. But forsaking is something different. And we're talking about something deliberate, something that we would have the the need to make an excuse about or have a justification for. That's something a little different. It's not having a reason. It's having an excuse or a justification. We should never behave in that way. Believers ought not to to behave in that way. Where they have to have an excuse or a justification for anything that they do. Remember, God knows every detail of our heart's attitude and our heart's motivation. The assembly referenced here is the local church, which meets in various ways and at various times, but nevertheless, it meets. It's not something to be taken lightly. Why is it not something to be taken lightly? Because we've already expressed we need each other. We're key to the spiritual growth of others, and they're key to our spiritual growth. Certainly not the only key, but one that God encourages, and encourages over and over and over. This reminds us not to forsake the assembly. Those who do, Forsake the assembly. There's obviously some. It said, as the manner of some. Some do that. We should not follow their example. Or use their example as a justification for our own forsaking. We're to do the opposite. Because we must exhort. So we've got a job to do here. That means coming alongside. It's a kind of a picture word to come alongside one another. And when we do so, we push each other forward, it seems, in our own discipleship. Because when we're alongside someone else, we're perfectly positioned to help. You'll notice I was watching some soccer this afternoon and um, just, just for a few minutes, and if somebody gets injured two people get on other side uh, either side of them and they put their arms around them and they they're holding their foot up maybe and they sort of go along holding them up and they're perfectly positioned to help alongside someone we can be alongside someone encourage them to encourage them and maybe to confront them if necessary but it all must be done in perfect accord with God's word. And it, whatever, however we do it should be in the character that God requires of us, in the manner that God requires of us, and it should be saturated with Scripture or the principles of Scripture or the ways in which Scripture communicates that we ought to do it. We must be alongside them to do it. And it says we're to do this so much the more as we see the day approaching. It says don't do this less. Do it more. What day that's approaching? Well, the day we can no longer work. The day that he calls us home to be with him. the day when we can't come alongside anymore. So we need to do it more and more as we see that day approaching. I don't think we've had any lack of clarity in knowing and coming to understand what part the local church plays in our study. It plays a big part in our study. And whoever else is studying the word of God, we play a big part in their study as well. That's just how God has designed it to work. Learn to study, study and fellowship are theme tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. There's a lot of responsibilities that we have. But here's what we know. All of the attributes that you listed for us to have, you have them. And you can empower us to have them. We just need to rely upon you and upon you fully. And then those responsibilities, those attributes that you say we ought to have, we can have them, we can have victory. You give us the power to have victory. We're thankful for that. We ought to study personally We got to help others to study for the purpose of growing, each of us growing, and really becoming successful in playing the part that you have chosen for us in our local assembly. Help us to do that. Remind us of it throughout the week. Help us to, to assemble and to be together, and when we are together, to do some of these things in a deliberate way. In Jesus' name, amen.